I don't know about you, but I didn't know what an ICF was before this interview, before this chat with Jessica Smith from Santa Fe Place in Oklahoma. I learned a lot. It's a unique place between acute and post-acute that gets lumped into long-term care. And I has to be one of the top 10 ambassadors of this niche. Just a lover of the industry. You can tell in her voice how much of an impact these residents have had on her and why she's passionate about it from a political point of view, from a quality of life point of view, and from a community builder. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. This episode was brought to you by Experience.Care, the long-term care EHR backed by guarantees. Visit experience.care forward slash guarantee to get your free profitability consultation today. Hello, welcome back to LTC Heroes Live by Experience Care. My name is Peter Murphy-Lewis. I'm your host. Today, I'm really excited because I am talking to a person who's passionate about something that I didn't know anything about until about a month ago. Her name is Jessica Smith. She's the Quality Assurance Director at Santa Fe Police. Jessica, welcome to the program, but tell me why I didn't know anything what an ICF was until a month ago. Hi, so yeah, thank you for having me. You know, a lot of people don't know what an ICF is, so don't feel bad. (laughs) ICF, it stands for Intermediate Care Facility, and the longer title of it is Intermediate Care Facility for Individuals with Intellectual Disabilities. So a lot of what ICFs do is kind of hidden behind long-term care in a lot of ways. And I think that people don't know about it because they're so focused on what is known as the home and community-based waivers, which is, you'll hear a lot of people say the waiting list. We're on the waiting list. This is in across multiple states. People with disabilities are on this waiting list waiting for services. And what they don't know is in the background, there's an ICF sitting there ready to help. And that's why it's so important to me to get the word out about what we are. That's beautiful introduction. Let's assume that the person listening right now is a CNA. They work at a skilled nursing facility. They've been there for six months. Can you explain to them what are the main differences that they would pick up on in the first five minutes walking into an ICF or meeting someone like you? So I think that the very first thing you would pick up on is that this is not a setting where we do things for people. We do things with people or we teach them how to do it themselves. So it's not an industry where you have a call light and you go get a glass of water. It is, well, let me show you where the glasses are so you can get water yourself. And that sometimes can be challenging to change that mind frame. But the best way to put it is that in a setting like an ICF, we are the beginning of the road where a skilled nursing or a nursing home you're looking at, they've lived their life and you're making the rest of it better for them. And you're helping them through those end stages in an ICF, we're beginning life. It's a great intro. So I'm guessing a good percentage of people you work with, to make sure I'm using the correct proposition, are people that aren't coming from acute. So in a traditional nursing home, people are moving from acute over where are the residents or the community members that you work with coming from? How do they get to you? So our main sources for residents, a lot of it comes from the special education classes in high school. So we'll have a lot of residents who might be 19, 20, 21 years old. And then several of them are really just kind of word of mouth. The referrals don't come much from our county health departments. They don't really 
come much from other state sources. So it's once people understand that we're here, they're shocked and they're ready to learn more. Why is that? Why aren't the referrals coming from other public organizations and institutions? Is it they don't understand it? Is it they don't support it? Is it all of the above? It's all of the above. Many decades ago, there was a law called the Olmstead Act that had to do with people who were placed in institutions and that they had a right to choose to live in the community. However, a lot of times that's misconstrued to say that they don't have a right to live in a facility, but they do. And so they have the right to choose where they live, regardless of where that place is. And so places like your public agencies are really pushing towards someone living in a house by themselves or with one or two other people. And so they steer away from the ICF setting. And the problem with that is that when you're in the service of providing care, everybody needs something different. And one size can't fit all because we're not all the same. And feel free to say, I don't know, but I feel like you're going to know that at least part of this answer better than I How did ICFs put into long-term care? Is it a legislative issue? Is it policy? Is it legal? Is it just because it's a small enough number they didn't know where else to put it? Do you know any historical context? I do. And really, a lot of what the history that I know of is going to be Oklahoma history, but I know that other states fall in this pattern as well. But federally, ICFs are not considered long-term care. So each state then has to try and define it within their state. And so back in the 70s and the 80s, whenever there was a big push to close large institutions, because when I say large, I mean large public institutions that were anywhere from 2,000 to 3,000 people large, and their staffing wasn't available. There was a lot of different issues, but those large institutions were licensed as an ICF. And so that right there gave us a bad stigma from the get-go. And then what happened was whenever they started closing them down and moving those residents into other settings, not everyone wanted to live in a house alone. They were used to living with other people. There was a fear of isolation. And then the other part of it was the community-based services are ran by the same state agency that was required to close the large institution. So many families did not want to put their family member back in the hands of that state agency. And so the only other option at that point was nursing homes. And so people with developmental and intellectual disabilities would end up being placed in a wing in a nursing home, and they would close that wing off and try to provide a different type of services. So when this happened, it made sense because the nursing home And the ICF wing shared the same medical director, we shared the same DON, we shared the same administrator, we shared the same staff. So all of that made sense, but that was in the 80s. And it's time to move on. When you're saying state institutions, the first thing that came to mind, and I might be completely off, so I won't be offended if you tell me. I'm from a small town in Kansas where I grew up and one of the largest employers in my small town was a state hospital. Is that what you're talking about in the 80s? Yes. Now your stigma makes sense to me. Yeah. Yeah. So, and if you're from Kansas, you're probably also familiar with the institution in Oklahoma that was known as Eastern State Hospital. So those types of settings. And, you know, Oklahoma had three large state institutions that were strictly for people with intellectual disabilities. And they were ran by 
a state agency and the state ended up being sued for the way that the people were treated. And they won. The people who sued won as they should have. They deserved to win. You know, but the problem is that the name ICF stayed with us, even though we began creating private ICFs and branching away from state agencies. We never got to change our name. So the stigma stayed. What are the overlaps between an ICF and what you and I would consider to be traditional long-term care? Is there overlap with CMS? Is there overlap with QAPI? Is there overlap with software? Is there overlap with reimbursements? Anything that you can explain to me that would make sense? Okay, confession time. Yes, I host the LTC Heroes podcast, and hopefully you know that by now, but I can't take all the credit. Jason Long, the CEO of Experience Care, told me two years ago that when we started this show, that this new audio platform had to create value for everyone, whether you're a client of Experience Care EHR or not. Then he encouraged me to become a CNA to really help LTC heroes resonate with caregivers and leaders. And between you and me, he really knew what he was talking about. LTC heroes has been invited to almost 10 conventions in 2022 to finally shine a light on what leaders like you have been doing for decades. It's that sort of knowledge of the industry that really makes me appreciate experience care, which has developed a customizable and intuitive EHR that makes clinical financial and billing processes more efficient and accurate. It transforms workflows into something that makes sense so you can focus on what really matters, caring for your residents. The software is used by ALFs, SNFs, CCRCs, big and small facilities alike. Countless users have reached out and shared with me that it really is effective in helping them improve outcomes. I can honestly say that I know my grandparents would be proud to learn that I work at a place like at Experience Care, and I just wanted to take the time to thank Experience Care for sponsoring this podcast. Check out their latest products at www.experience.care. So really the only overlaps there are CMS. So we, in nursing homes and skilled nursings, you have Appendix Double P. We have Appendix J. So CMS does the same with ICFs as they do with nursing homes or other long-term care settings. They set the regulation. They have a contract with a state agency to do inspections, all of those things. But the other things you're mentioning, the QAPI, the PB&J, we don't do any of those things. None of that is part of our requirements. The only other overlap I can think of at the moment would be, well, really, that's the only one I can think of at the moment. I guess I'll go to, back to like your personal and professional history. How long have you been in ICF? And the follow-up question, so you know why I'm asking it is, are there moments where a resident from ICF transitions into traditional long-term care? Sure. Yes. So I actually was introduced into this as a very young age, whenever I mentioned about there being a wing in a nursing home that was ICF. That's where my mother worked when I was a little girl. And so that's where we would go trick-or-treating. That's where we had Christmas parties, you know, so it just became part of my life from very young. But Santa Fe Place, my mom and I actually opened this place in conjunction with an owner in 2006. So I've actually been involved in ICF for 25 years. Wow. So then the follow-up question is, do you have relationships with great SNFs in your neighborhood, in your area? And there are a moment, you know, like maybe there's transitions at the age of 40 when their health deteriorates and they need more hands-on and it's no longer the starting point of their life. Rather, they need support as they start to say goodbye. Absolutely. Yes. And so that kind of brings another interesting point that there are two types of ICFs, and one of them is a small ICF and one is a large ICF. 
and in the small ICFs, which is what we are, we do not provide nursing type services. So anything that would require a nurse to be here 24 hours a day, we can no longer do that. So I have an RN consultant and I do have an LPN that's here 40 hours a week, but I do not have around the clock nursing. So let's say a person gets on sliding scale insulin, or if they go into renal failure and they need dialysis, things of that nature, then most definitely there's several different sniffs that I use for short-term stays or maybe fractures and they need therapy. And then places I can transition for a long-term care setting for the remainder of their life. Yeah. Does that stigma, I'm guessing for the sniffs that you're on good terms with and know your passion, this doesn't happen, but the stigma from ICF and what was understood of the state institutions, the 80s carry over when you're doing a referral, they're like, oh, this is going to be a difficult resident. No, no, actually the stigma does not exist among providers, between providers, nursing homes and SNFs pretty well understand, you know, the different types of settings and why we need them. And so sometimes they'll get a referral and it's somebody who doesn't need nursing services. And they're like, wait, no, let's get Jessica's number. This isn't the right setting. And likewise, I also do the same. The stigma comes from the general public legislation and county agencies. This is kind of an odd question, but I'm always interested in how people learn where people go to when they can't find the answer on the internet or in a book. How did you go about understanding how to deliver care and work with these residents, given that there's so few examples? I mean, I'm guessing you don't have a strong association and you go into a long-term care association, you're just not going to get the same amount of clinical support that a traditional SNF would. Where did you get the knowledge that you have now to be a great caregiver? So like I said, I was pretty much raised in this with my mom. So, you know, I kind of started that way, but my first job at 17 years old was in an ICF. And so I started out that way. And what's interesting is that I didn't know who all I could go and get training from. And there are multiple private ICFs in Oklahoma, and they're owned by different family members, actually, that won that lawsuit that we talked about earlier. They would get together, they would create a board, and they would create a private ICF so that they could provide care. So where I went to work was actually founded by the family members of someone who lived in a large state institution. They developed their training program. That is a unique story. I'm guessing when you meet you know, other Jessica Smiths in, in Ohio or in Utah, you find similar situations, right? People had to learn organically or naturally. Yes, it's funny you mentioned that Ohio. I just absolutely am astounded and amazed by their program in Ohio for what we do and for ICS. I refer to them all the time because of the training they have available and the wonderful resources they have available. And Ohio is a great example of ways that you could actually help families and people with intellectual disabilities. But for the most part, yeah, we're sort of out here by ourselves. <laughs> I've got a question from the personal side of things. Do you have any unique memories in, you know, either improved your framework of approaching life or taught you something about yourself, about the residents that you work with? That's a really good way to place that question. So one of my favorite stories is here at Santa Fe Place, we created an action club. And what action club does is we go out and we help the community. We help people less fortunate than ourselves. 
which is powerful when you're thinking about people with disabilities going out and helping others less fortunate. That's pretty powerful, what it has taught them and what it's taught the community, honestly. And so this concept was very hard to grasp for my staff. It was hard to grasp for the residents. It was hard to grasp for the community. But I sunk my teeth in and said, well, you're going to have to grasp it because we're going with it. So we were in the community trying to find places that we could help and that we could do things for. And so we went to our community church and it was during the week. So the doors were locked, but there was a secretary in there working and we rang the doorbell and with me was a young lady and I'll call her Julie. She was very short and she had Down syndrome and she was standing with me and we were waiting for the secretary and the secretary came and opened the door. And she leans down, you know, really close to Julie. And she says, oh, aren't you the cutest thing? How can I help you? And I just sort of froze. But Julie knew exactly what to do. She started laughing a lot. And then she says, oh, no, ma'am, you don't understand. I'm here to help you. And it was fabulous because of how much they actually have taught our community And that was the beginning of the story, but that has been the theme of what we do ever since. What an inspiring story to hear. I love walking into a conversation knowing that I'm completely ignorant and walking out and feeling inspired, feeling a little bit more educated. Is there anything I haven't asked you about what you love, about your passion, about the people that you work with that I haven't asked you that you'd like to highlight? Yeah, I think that what makes me so very passionate about what I do is seeing the outcome, seeing someone who moves in and maybe they're considered nonverbal. And a lot of times people will give folks things that actually encourage the disabilities. And so, for example, I know there was a gentleman that moved in who they said was nonverbal. They gave him, you know, a speech device where he could push the buttons. He really didn't want to do that, and he didn't try to talk. And what happens is you have to learn to listen to their language. And come to find out, the young man was bilingual. And the problem was that he he could understand you, but in his head, he would get the two languages mixed up. And so what would come out would not always be understandable. And giving him a device discouraged him to even try. And so what we do is such personalized one-on-one understanding and communication and developing things with people that before long, he was saying three and four and five word sentences because we let him try and we encouraged it. You know, it's the outcomes that you see and the changes in the lives that you see. Someone who has never had a job who can work now, someone who had never had a chance to have their own money on them has a job and goes and buys their own lunch during the day. And, you know, just wonderful outcomes like that. That's great. I'm certain that there is someone who's going to hear this that is an MDS coordinator, a director of nursing administrator. You know what? I have a neighbor who I think might be a great candidate for working together with an ICF. What would you say to them for them to find a service like yours in their local area? How do they find it? So really the best way that I can say that anybody could find an ICF is it's a federal requirement for the state agency that surveys ICFs to have a directory or a listing of ICFs. 
So whoever is inspecting and surveying that SNF or that nursing home, that same website is going to have a list of intermediate care facilities in the state. That's wonderful. Jessica, thank you so much for sharing your story. It's love to hear your smile. Everyone who's listened to this on a podcast can tell your passion and hopefully someone learned as much as I did and learned to appreciate your unique niche in between acute and post-acute. Thank you for being on the program. Thank you so much. Visit ltcheroes.com to join our Facebook group for nurses and our exclusive LinkedIn group for LTC owners. Visit ltcheroes.com for your exclusive access today. This episode was brought to you by Experience.Care, the long-term care EHR backed by guarantees. Visit Experience.Care forward slash guarantee to get your free profitability consultation today.